fullness there, fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, upon the rivers. Who shall fullness there the Lord? And who shall stand on his holy place? He who has a clean who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 8. We're reading verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you will speak. Your servants are gathered here to listen, to receive food from you. Nurture us, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. It is good to be back with you after a few weeks away. I was traveling uh, while my wife was in Africa. I received her back on Friday evening, and I received my son back uh, this afternoon but we had a great opportunity to be away to worship at several Presbyterian congregations in the Atlanta area and also to grow homesick. I realized I was not at home uh, during one particular worship service where there was a response after the reading of the word, and they said, this is the word of the Lord, and the people were to respond, thanks be to God. Um, Being accustomed to worshiping with you, I came out loud and proud. (laughs) It was awkward. (laughs) 
uh, there was this low murmur, and then everybody's looking at me quite oddly. So I'm grateful to be home. It's good to be with you, worshiping, giving thanks to God, reading from His Word this morning. Um, as we continue our series back in 1 Corinthians. For several weeks, we've taken a break in the Psalms as we do each summer to hear from uh, those ancient prayers. But uh, this week, we do pick back up in 1 Corinthians 8, continuing this series that will take us all the way to the season of Advent. And so we're here in Paul's first letter, his first epistle to the church in Corinth. And it is a church by way of reminder that's in threat of being swallowed up by its surrounding culture. In those first seven chapters, we saw that this church was captive to the broader culture, that they had accommodated various parts of cynic and stoic philosophy and melted those together with their faith in Jesus. And this had resulted in a very deficient gospel that was then being proclaimed. And so Paul writes to the church to correct them in these deficiencies, to draw them back to the true Jesus, that they would not live in this deformed and compromised version of Christianity that they had created. And we saw that the errors were not just doctrinal, but though they were doctrinal, they were also very practical that Corinth was a church divided into, torn apart in its ethics, in its beliefs, and in its practices. It was a mess. But one of the most difficult parts when you're reading this letter is that you learn that the church was not theologically ignorant. In fact, in the passage we have in front of us, we learn that they're quite theologically informed, that they knew things. But perhaps the biggest problem for the church in Corinth was that they knew just enough to be dangerous. No doubt in your life you've had many experiences where you knew just enough to be extremely dangerous. When my son was, oldest son was two years old, he had just, uh, we just welcomed his little brother into the, into the family and he was discovering magic markers. And he had been taught where to use those said magic markers. And he was learning that if you drew, it made nice lines and sometimes permanent lines. And he then discovered that if he went into the dining room, he could also use the big open wall as a place for his magic markers. And that he would have that same effect. He had just enough knowledge of how something worked and how to relate to the world to be extremely dangerous, requiring a paint job. And that's what was happening in Corinth, is they had some theological knowledge. They'd been introduced to Jesus Christ. They were walking with God, but yet they were still captive to this broader culture, and they hadn't left several things behind, just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And some of them were extremely capable, extremely gifted, and they had leadership skills and abilities. And here there was now a need for Paul to speak a word of contradiction a word that conflicted with what they were teaching. He had to come in and speak strongly about the issues that were plaguing the church. And this morning, what we see in chapter 8 is he addresses three main problems. And these three problems, though, are not isolated to history. They're three problems that continue to harass us today when we handle theological issues. So it's important for us to overhear this conversation that God has with this historic congregation, but he is still speaking to us today through it about the problems and the difficulties that we face when we handle theological knowledge. 
But the first of these is very simple. In verses 1 through 3, we see that theological knowledge can inspire human arrogance. Look how Paul opens. Now concerning food offered to idols. If you remember, the letter is structured. The first four chapters, Paul is announcing some broad uh, brush strokes about what is going on wrong in Corinth. And then after that, he turns to address some things that they had requested that he speak into in a letter that they had written to him. So he's turning to this topic of food offered to idols. They were exercised about this and they needed some guidance. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We've seen over these chapters that the Corinthians were addicted to knowledge. In fact, they wanted to confine the spiritual life to the knowledge of God and separated from the ethical world of how they behaved and how they acted. And so they were taken up with this idea of wisdom and knowledge and, and learning. But one of the things that happened inside of that knowledge, there was a spiritual elitism that took up residence inside the church that was then creating divisions between the strong uh, and the weak, those who considered themselves strong and those they looked down on that they considered to be weak. And so there were problems that knowledge was creating. And Christian church, no doubt, still struggles with this same problem where with knowledge we can build spiritual elitism and we can have classes inside of the church and we can create our own caste system. I wish I could say that my own theological journey was free from the disease, but it's not been. I remember in 1995, as a young man who was gaining interest in theology, I was given the book Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. I read that book over the course of a weekend. And though I had grown up in a good Presbyterian church and been taught the doctrines of grace, I had never fully comprehended or understood them. But then in the course of that weekend, I was dumbfounded. How could I have missed this? I didn't know anything prior to this moment. I've missed everything. And so my friends along with me, we all began to read and to study more about the doctrines of grace. And it humbled us in certain ways in front of God. And at the same time, it puffed us up. We became the critics of all good preaching in the city. And we could travel around and listen to it and, and parse out who was preaching grace and who was not. After a few years, that got a little bit old. And there was this new guy named John Piper who had written a book called Desiring God. It's a fantastic book, just along with Chosen by God. And I began reading John Piper's theology and his account of what it meant to desire God. And so that became something to attach to. And at no fault of John Piper's, that then became the weapon that I was going to wield against other people. That they didn't desire God in the passionate way that God asked of us because he had first turned our hearts. And then that grew old and my passions grew cold. In 1998, I remember I was handed a sermon by a little-known preacher at that point named Tim Keller who was planting a church in Manhattan. And it was on Luke chapter 15. And I remember still listening to that sermon and becoming undone at his gospel preaching, how he was explaining the grace of God. And so then me and my friends, we became what you could call grace bullies. That if you didn't agree with us and if you weren't free, we could push you around with grace and tell you you didn't get it. 
Then I went to seminary and read Herman Ritterboss about the kingdom of God and thought, have I ever read the Bible before? I didn't know this. And it could go on and on, friends. And there's nothing wrong with the acquisition of theological knowledge. God actually commands you and commissions you and authorizes you to enter into that task. But what we do with it can be so destructive because we can take that theological knowledge and we can turn it into human arrogance and we can create divisions and classes among ourselves based on whether you are in or whether you are out. And so rather than using knowledge to serve one another and to love God, to love our neighbor and to love God, we use it as a weapon against other people. And that's where theological knowledge can go so wrong. I remember during my first year of seminary, one of my professors, Richard Pratt, was trained by a philosopher and theologian named Cornelius Van Til at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And Richard, knowing that he was dealing with a young group of theologically arrogant seminarians, would draw two diagrams that he had gotten from Van Til. The first one, he would draw a big circle up on the board, and he would say, this is the creator. And then down below it, he would draw a little small circle and say, this is the creature. I want you to remember that, he would tell us. We're talking about God, and this is your proper place. Then he would draw another big circle on the board. He would say, this is God's knowledge of himself. It's exhaustive. It's infinite. And then inside of that big circle, he would draw a very small circle. And he would say, that small circle represents your knowledge of God. God knows himself exhaustively. You don't know him exhaustively. If you did, you would be God was the argument. Then he would say, look, don't despair. What you know about God is true. What he has revealed to you is true. But you only know in part was the argument. And so there was great cause for celebration and thanksgiving for what God has revealed. But then there's great humility. And friends, this is the way theology is to work for us. It is never to puff us up but rather is to deliver us to love God and to give thanks to God and to love our neighbor. Look what Paul says again in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And back in verse 2, if anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you follow Paul's argument with this, turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. You look in verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, speaking of the great last day when Jesus returns to the earth, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And friends, this just means that it's necessary for us to be humble and not arrogant in our theological knowledge. We are to go after that knowledge because that knowledge is not about some abstract math formula. It is knowledge of the living God. It's how we commune with Him. It's giving account of the person that we know is God. That's what theology is. And so we want to engage with that. But we never want it to become a sword that we use against others. It's always knowledge that's used to love God and love others. Second thing that we see that can go wrong with this acquisition of theological knowledge, though, is found in verses 4 through 6. And we see that our theological knowledge can be used to support our self-interest. 
And you have to follow this carefully because this gets down into the weeds and details of what was happening in Corinth. In verse 4 through 6, there is a basic confession of faith in which Paul is quoting evidently from the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. And it is good theology. Listen to it again. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Many people ask the question, what does this confession of faith have to do with the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols? And it's important for us to pursue it in some depth because it is at the heart and core of Paul's argument here about what was happening. You see, in Corinth, there were many pagan temples that no doubt the Gentile Christians who had joined the church had been formerly associated with. And it was common, especially for the upper class and the wealthy in the city, to receive frequent invitations to the temple. Being invited to the temple was a mix of two things. It was a mix of religion and of also just social behavior. You could be invited to the temple to enjoy a sacrificial meal on the occasion of your friend or your neighbor's birthday. We have uh, preserved for us invitations actually from the city of Corinth that are ancient that mark such occasions. And so if you were connected and well-to-do, which we know some of the people in the Corinthian congregation, probably the leadership was, there would be such invitations. And so you would go to the temple where an animal would be slaughtered. Part of it would be preserved for the meal. Part of it would be offered to the God and part of it would be offered to the priest. And so the Corinthians were saying, we know that there are no other gods. There is one true God. If you were to read Psalm 24 again, you would see that clear confession of faith or Psalm 135 that there are no other gods. There is one true God. This was part of the Christian confession of faith that was essential to what they believed. And so they were picking that up and they said, okay, because there's no other gods, it doesn't matter if we then go to the temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter. And you see what was happening? Is they were using their theology to support and to justify and to rationalize their social connections. They didn't want to give those things up because it would have been extremely offensive not to go to the temple to celebrate the birthday, to celebrate the anniversary, to participate in the trade guild. Their livelihoods were based in this. And so suddenly when they were threatened with losing all of those things, they held off. No, well, you know, Asclepius is really not a real God. And so it doesn't matter if something's being offered to him and whether I go eat it in his presence. No matter what everybody else around me is doing, it doesn't matter. That's the situation of food being sacrificed to idols that Paul has to confront. Thyssen, one of the commentators on this quips. He says, the world is rejected by these Corinthians in a theoretical way in order to profit from it in a practical way. 
And that's what we can do with our theology. We can take good theology and we can use it in a way where it's not proper and it supports our own self-interest. You can look through the history of the Presbyterian church and find many such instances where theology was used to sustain and support our self-interest. And perhaps it was attempting to be good theology, but it was used for very selfish reasons. And friends, we have to be very aware that the gospel separates us. It severs us from our self-interest. It draws us away from that. Look what Paul says in the middle of this confession of faith in verse 6. He says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. The logic here is imperative to follow. That he is saying all things come from God. He knows that all things are returning to God. But he says we exist for God. We do not exist for our own purposes. Earlier in chapter 6, he said you've been bought with a price. And this is Paul's entire theology of the Christian life is that gratitude answers grace. And this is what the life of the Christian is, is to respond to God and not to live for our own self-interest, that we're to turn away from that. We're not our own. And so be careful with your theology. Ask yourself those interrogating questions. Am I using the good theology that I know to sustain and support selfish interest? The final piece, though, that we see of the dangers of assimilating this theological knowledge and how it can go wrong is found in verses 7 through 13. And we see that theological knowledge can be divorced from love. And this is the major argument that Paul is making in these verses. If you follow with me in verses 9 and 10, he says, but take care. Words that are used in the Old Testament, take care, when uh, there is a warning about idolatry. And Paul echoes that Old Testament sentiment here in a powerful way. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so he's saying you need to be very careful that your right, your exertion of eating idol meat in the temple doesn't become a stumbling block for others. And he's speaking of fellow Christians. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? You see, the Corinthians had fallen into a fatal trap where they had equated their knowledge with sanctification. That the ethical life, the life that is well lived in front of God was equated to knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge and to fine thinking and to things being well spoken. And Paul undermines that and says, no, you don't have to be intelligent. You don't have to be smart to be a Christian. That the Christian life begins in love. That that's the point. Look what he says again, back up in verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so knowledge was being used in the wrong way and in the wrong direction. And that they needed to be more convicted 
about loving their brothers and sisters, and especially some who have been formerly associated with the worship of those gods in those temples. And he says, look, you who are using your theology in that way, you're exposing some of those fresh new converts to returning to that lifestyle. You, by saying it doesn't mean anything, they looking on you, seeing you do it, encouraged and emboldened to go back into that lifestyle. And so in a failure of love, they were dragging brothers and sisters back into idolatry. And friends, this is not to be the end and the fruit of our theology. It's to destroy another Christian's Christian faith. We're not to take them down in that way. We're not to say, hey, we're the strong and we have knowledge, therefore get over it. Paul says no. He will never eat meat, and that is code for he will never eat meat sacrificed to idols, lest he make his brother stumble. That the well-being, the welfare of his brother was so important to him and that that was core to the Christian ethic. And to really be doing theology means that you'll really be doing love for the community and the church. That theology that is divorced from love is no theology at all is what Paul is arguing here. Love builds up. Love edifies. Known by God. We turn to love God and we turn to love our neighbor. That is the ultimate theological task. It sounds simple. It was Jesus' summary of what the duties of human beings are. But it's a never-ending task. And so we are to get lost in what Paul says where we have been known by God. That God has discovered us. God has come to us. And now we're to respond ourselves to this God. And we're to respond by loving Him and loving those around us. And so do you know just enough theology to be dangerous? All of us do. And we're full of rationalizations. We're full of justifications. We're full of many things where we can take theology in sinful directions. But use your theology. Allow it to create humility in, inside of you before God. That God has turned to you and now you are to turn to Him. God has been gracious to you. God has known you and now allows you to know Him and will fully manifest Himself to you one day. That all things come from God. And therefore, you exist for God. Don't use your theology to baptize your self-interest. Use your theology to love others. May it deliver you to that end. And that is a theologically informed. That is a theologically educated church. That's what we aspire to be. Let's pray and ask for His help. Father, we know that we're weak. We're corrupt in the knowledge of our own corruption. We're corrupt in our knowledge of you. And we use the knowledge of you in all kinds of ways that you don't sanction. Forgive us for that and help us. May your grace towards us, may it translate into us turning to you and loving you and loving the world around us, particularly the Christian community, those whom you've asked us to live with, and may we avoid those idolatries that can drag others away and destroy their faith. Help us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.